Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast is also supported by the novel Deadly Declarations, available in print and audiobook wherever books are sold, and an ebook on Amazon Kindle. Written by Landis Wade and narrated by Bill A. Jones, Deadly Declarations is a light-hearted legal thriller that delves into a 250-year-old colonial mystery that Founding Father John Adams called one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. For reviews and information about Deadly Declarations, please visit LandisWade.com. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode 297, we visit with Martin Mangello, author of Terrace Psychotic, Mary Patton. This is the story of American Shiro, Mary Patton, and her famed gunpowder production that the author says helped win the Revolutionary War, Battle of Kings Mountain, Cowpens, and Guilford Courthouse. The book includes six full-color paintings of Mary and her friends and explores her relationships with colonels, privates, captains, and Sally New River of the Catawba Indian Nation, among others. It's one rebel's story. Dr. Dean Ornish, author of seven best-selling books, says, At last, women of the American Revolution receive the credit they deserve. Highly recommended. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. I also love how interviewing more than 300 authors on this podcast has helped my own writing journey. I've learned quite a bit from these talented guests. And if you'd like to learn more about my books and uh, what I've done with that uh, knowledge, you can uh, check out LandisWade.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there, and uh, also please follow me on BookBub. And for everything related to Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got a newsletter there as well. And by the way, with these newsletters, which come out monthly, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. And finally, if you'd like uh, to get a free audiobook when you sign up for audiobooks at Libra.fm, just use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and you're in business. Now, let's get to the episode. Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Landis. Yeah, glad to have you here. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And congratulations on the book. Oh my gosh, yeah, this was part of my uh, second master's degree, so I was so excited. Hey, before we talk about uh, Mary Patton, Tara Psychotic, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your interesting life. Uh, uh, I've I've looked uh, at your bio and everything. You're a former White House chef. You say you've worked for the past six presidents for 25 years from H.W. Bush through uh, through our current president, uh, uh, Biden. Uh, what exactly is it that you did or do and, and, and what you've done in the culinary world for the White House? 
Yeah, I got started when I was 2017. I was recruited by the White House Military Office and uh, then eventually nominated by the Secretary of the Navy and went off to do that job and became a butler, a housekeeper, a bartender, sometimes till two in the morning. Sure, I was a chef. You put the white coat on. I had always been a chef since about the age of six or seven, Landis, and loved cooking and loved the military and loved the ocean. Uh, So I figured the Navy was ultimately a great choice and went into the Navy as a cook. And uh, lo and behold, you know, some Nine years later, I found myself calling my parents saying, hey, they're going to start coming all around Delaware County, Pennsylvania and interviewing people um, on being considered for a position at the White House. So, you know, my parents did some crying and my grandmother was freaked out. But ultimately, I was a hotelier and a restaurateur uh, my entire career since a kid. And I've just continued to do that. Along the way, I've always been an armchair historian, Landis. I love history. So it seemed natural to to write history books about the culinary history of the White House, uh, the history of our nation. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun. I don't anticipate stopping anytime soon. Yeah. So uh, any interesting dishes that you're responsible for uh, cooking for the presidents? You know, I just did one in in Washington, D.C. last month, um, and it was at a luncheon for 250 people for the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, 128-year association in American history. But I also do a historical luncheon. And one of the things they had was Mrs. Grover Cleveland's brown bread was in the bread basket when they first came in. And they seem to all want all the political action committees and and conventions, Landis, they all want to have the Clinton famous mango salad dressing that I invented for Hillary on the table, as well as the famous Trump vinaigrette dressing. So you get to pick which one you want. (laughs) And most of them, honestly, Landis, they they try both of them, you know, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, That day, we also had a, a barbecue chicken breast with Lady Bird Johnson's famous barbecue sauce. And uh, we ended everything with a Charlotte Russe, of course, named after our town here, uh, the Queen of England, Charlotte. So that's one of our hidden culinary uh, claims to fame is the Charlotte Russe. And hardly anybody serves it anymore. It's so, so old. You know, it was uh, prevalent. Of course, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln made it very famous during her husband's uh, presidency. Well, I love the fact that you've got uh, two salad dressings that the political parties can choose from. I'm, su- I'm sure they're saying that there are secrets hidden in both of them, right? Absolutely. And and that's my chance to play chef and historian on stage and get paid. So I always thank them for the work. I'm like, I as a disabled and injured veteran in war, I am so thankful for this work. Now, you mentioned you uh, had served on submarines Um I think really a 30-year what history with that, and I'm, I'm just yeah. I'm a about... nuclear a nuclear submariner. I graduated nuclear submarine school. It was pretty freaking scary. They come through basic uh, cooking school and said, any nutcase that would like to go into a sewer pipe and live underwater, uh, raise your hand. And I was like, what's that all about? <laughs> they were like, well, we're the the silent service, and it's an all volunteer force, and we only take American citizens. And uh, you'll have to do some claustrophobia and, and psychotherapeutic, you know, profiling. 
Um, and you'll get paid extra money, which is kind of cool. About in those days, as 18 years old, 6000 bucks extra a year was kind of cool. Um, and you'll go away to nuclear submarine school, which is really difficult to pass. About one out of every three students makes it through. Uh, the fusion, the fission, you just, a lot of people, they can't comprehend it. The math or the electrical board distribution or hydraulics. Um, so we'll see if you can pass. And, you know, if, if you're apropos to that and smelling other uh, men's filthy socks, maybe thrown into your face or something by accident, it's pretty tight quarters, you know, then let us know. And And the last thing they said, Landis, was, by the way, you'll have to be able to clear and get a secret clearance because everyone in the American nuclear submarine force is an American citizen and has a secret clearance. We don't care if you're a yeoman, a cook, or what your job is. Do you think you can do that, boy? And I was like, I guess so, sir. Sure, I'll give it a try. So <laughs> that's how I got involved with telling Hillary Clinton one day. She asked me, and where did you go to school? The Culinary Institute of America, Marty, or or Johnson and Wales, or I was like, <laughs> uh, no, First Lady, all all self taught inside of a sewer pipe with about 114 men. <laughs> well, you know, listeners, we are going to get to the book here. I promise you, but uh, I am, I am just curious about one more thing about a submarine. How do you cook on a submarine? I'm thinking they don't like fires very much in submarines, right? Yeah, you're exactly right, Landis. Uh, smart. Point, very intelligent on your part. Fire is actually the worst enemy. I know a lot of people think it's flooding or being crushed to death because a new word in the English language I learned, you actually implode. Um, you crush to death and it bends apart the reactor in steel the further down you go, you know. So, um, yeah, fire is really our biggest enemy and being choked out. So it is difficult to cook. Uh, we use all electric stoves and ranges, you know. And you're doing about 18 hours per day. So it's easy to to do 126-hour work week, seven times 18. Um, and you just get accustomed to that hard, gritty, tough work. And, and you know, the, I think the, the crazy thing is when you call up the control and say, hey, is it safe to light the defat fryer? You know, they kind of do some, some analysis. Are we going to do an angle greater than four degrees within the next hour? Because the last thing you want is boiling oil coming out of the fryer all over the deck and spilling all back into the reactor compartment. And, you know, which is what would happen if they had to take a sudden angle and you're in there doing, you know, baskets of fried chicken. Good gosh. That's a lot to think about. Uh, who would have thought the cook could uh, take the submarine down, kind of like the, uh, you, know, you know, the lantern that uh, the cow kicked over that, that yeah. burned up the. Uh, burned up the city. All right. Well, look. Let's talk about the book uh, Terra Psychotic, uh, Mary Patton. Uh, you said yeah. you did this. You did this in connection with uh, your master's program. What drew you to uh, this woman, Mary Patton, who you call an American Shiro? Yeah, just underrepresentation of women in the war, uh, the colonial war, the Revolutionary War, and the more you study here where I live at Kings Mountain, um, it's sometimes called the Presbyterian Uprising. I would often constrain my research to no book published before the year of 1800. And that's when I started to notice the name of this war is often referred to as the Presbyterian Uprising. So, um, you know, I, I started to ask myself, were there no women involved? And, and 
I had always heard that a lady donated 500 pounds of black powder for the Battle of Kings Mountain and that she was an expert black powder maker. But it seemed like a lot of times it was the same regurgitated facts over and over, even if you went to a national park or a state park and and there was an authoritarian up front. It was the same six to common eight regurgitated facts that everybody quoted. There was never anything more. And that kind of pissed me off. It frustrated me. I wanted to fester. So that's what got me kicking on down this road. Mm. Well, tell us about her. Tell us about Mary Patton, where she came from, and uh, a little bit about the role that she had in, in the, whether you want to call it the Presbyterian Uprising or the Revolutionary War. Yeah, so Mary, um, her whole family will move from Scotland and live in Pennsylvania, the Quaker state. And she's out actually by Carlisle is where she lives and runs into a very famous uh, lady who later on has her name changed in history. Most people today know her as Molly Pitcher. Um, She had just moved to Carlisle. And there's a bunch of family and friends who were talking with Mary and her husband and trying to convince them, um, you know, you really ought to move down here into the forbidden zone. And you could operate this black powder operation that you're doing in Pennsylvania down here in in what we call the black hole. It's in the forbidden area on the left-hand side of the mountains where no whites are supposed to be. So we're kind of like able to do whatever we want over here. And we're cool with the Indians that live here. We've either paid them or we have a contract with them. And you could operate pretty much out of the reach of the English empire. And so that's how she gets down here. Yeah. To where we live now, you know, we, we call it North Carolina. Um, Today where she lives is now called the Tennessee. So how how did she get into this making of black powder, which was a very dangerous thing to do uh, at the time? Um, Most women would not have found themselves perhaps in that situation, but she obtained a following within the military and maybe some outside the military for her skill set of developing black powder. What, What was it about her that drew her to this profession? Yeah, it was really her dad. Her dad taught her all about this, and that's how she got started doing it and became an expert at it and really, really skilled. And, you know, if your powder can rival the marketplace, you know, so when you go to the Charlotte or Savannah or Charlestown, um, which we call Charleston today, uh, or or Charlottetown or Charlottesburg, depending on which year you're looking at Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, um, you'll notice in the marketplace the highest cost powder is from Switzerland. So it's a Swiss powder. It's very fine. And it's like opening the sun when it detonates. It's a small cannon going off, but it costs a lot of money. And so Mary is this good. Her powder is very well known um, for being as good as the Swiss powder. And and so she learns from her dad. Um, But really the finishing touches for Mary, what makes her powder better and better and better is where she moves to and lives. It, it's not as good as when she's making it in the Pennsylvania. And, and for the first time, I unlocked in my book technologically why, chemically why it is. And that was my big aim, Landis, was I want to unlock for the first time in history 
mathematically, algorithmically, chemically, and technically why this woman was so famous and what is it that she did geographically. And I wanted to prove that. I wanted to prove that. And so I have tons and tons of footnotes and a mass of bibliography and, and references in the back. And the publisher warned me about all that too. They said, you know, this is like, stupid. I mean, you've got eight pages of bibliography and references and you have an index too, and, and, you know, all these footnotes. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not looking to win an award for my book. I didn't want to do all that. I, I wanted to prove a technological point of how smart and ingenious this woman was. Um, and apparently there are more bat caves in the South. Does that have something to do with it? Absolutely, because we get nitre from poop. And so when the pamphlets come down here all through South Carolina and the North Carolina from Philadelphia, um, ordering all poop to be brought by wagons to to one of the very few gunpowder plants we have outside of Philly, it's pretty disheartening to everyone around here. And they are, are judiciously collecting poop from outhouses all animal pens, anywhere they can find poop to make niter with for a massive gunpowder operation, which is, you know, a huge complaint from from General Washington is if you want to starve out this army to where we have to like retreat after seven shots, this is getting to be pretty embarrassing. And people want to like quit because they they don't even have the basic items they need to engage in warfare, Hmm. which, which lack of black powder is a joke. And you're a joke as the Congress, the Continental Congress. You're a joke. Okay, this was the message. So um, when you you lose all the the poop, you lose a crucial one of the three things you need to make black powder, which is niter. Okay, and and if you're operating on the other side of the mountain, on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains by Gatlinburg, we'll just call it Gatlinburg. Okay, which is you know Elizabethtown, which is where she lives um, in Tennessee today then all the poop over there doesn't have to be brought across the mountain. And not only that, you're exactly right. That's one of the things that they tell her is you have got to come down here and see all the bats that are hanging from the ceilings. We go into some of these caves here in Western North Carolina, which is Elizabethton, Tennessee today. And at times, Mary, there are 20 to 80,000 bats hanging. Okay. And, and you have got to come see this. And the, the poop is so caked thick on the floor, it's probably 100 to, to, I don't know, 400 years old of poop that is dried and caked. And, and so when Mary hears that, she says, oh, it is then. Well, everyone knows that bat poop is the best poop to use for making black powder. And it is. If you can get your hands on bat poop, it's like gold. And if you can get like massive supplies of bat dung, you're going to make a ton of money, which is what Mary does. She dies a very rich, rich lady. She owns over 4,000 acres in Tennessee when she passes away. Uh, you heard it here first, uh, listeners, how to how to make good gunpowder. Just just find yourself a good bat cave. Uh, That's it. So, uh, so let's do this. We uh, on our on Charlotte's podcast, authors give voice to the written words by reading uh, a little bit uh, from their book. And you've got a couple of sections here that tell us uh, a little bit about uh, you know Mary and uh, what she was doing. So, uh, anytime you're ready, um, 
you can uh, take it away. Yeah, uh, this uh, reading is from page 14. And let's not forget when returning home from these long trips, the strong box was always carried in by two stout men and filled with gold, jewels, silver, Spanish and Portuguese coins, silver and gold pound Scots coins, Irish pound coin, assorted states paper money, shillings, crowns, guinea and pound sterling backed by gold. Sir Isaac Newton, master of the Royal Mint, had switched it from being supported by silver in 1717. Mary was growing quite rich and purchasing thousands of acres of land very slowly and diligently. She sold her powder for a dollar a pound on these trips. She and John, her husband, would often bring a guard with them to watch the new wagon they had made in Conestoga, the valley of Pennsylvania, where they formerly lived nearby in Carlisle. This time it was Seamus, a strong Irish immigrant like John, who slept outside to watch the hidden money and powder. He had been a guest on the Hezekiah Alexander lands by Charlottetown before moving further west and told them stories of the secret signals in the upstairs windows. Many men left home during the British occupation of that town for their own safety, and mothers like Mary Sample Alexander hung clandestine indicators to let sons know they could come back home to resupply quickly and evacuate out again. He was a very trusted protector. So why was he at the table now? which gave Shankless new caution to be reminded they had another man with them who was very strong, and he eyed him up and down, assessing attacking him, possibly later or another time or tonight, next time. Now, no, 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 not now. Something men can do a lot of. Can I take this guy every time they meet someone? Which is why she and John always had a room with the window cracked next to the wagon, allowed to be pulled close to the building just for them. A coin for the owner ever got that approved. All right, that's that's great, uh, Marty. Before you read another little section here, I just want to stop. So her life um, was—I mean, she was, you know, some somewhat in danger at times, given what she did and how she did it. And she traveled, and she had access to lots of coin and cash. So, uh, kind of a—you know—she was living sort of a perilous uh, life, was she? She was because uh, that was part of her sales principle that was so unique. No wholesalers are allowed, no dropping off uh, large shipments to Home Depot where you can buy a can yourself or, or Walmart. Um, Mary was a direct seller in pocketing all of the money. So typically, you know, we sell stuff wholesale and then the wholesaler sells at retail and doubles the price again. Mary didn't do that. She sold one pound for one dollar and you paid her directly. And she would often write to people like Captain Jack. Um, at his tavern and tell him, you know, uh, coming up here on April 11th through the 15th, I will be in Charlottetown. Please let everyone know from Colonel Hambright to Colonel Cleveland and anyone who wants my powder, because I'm not going to Wilmington this time. I'm going to divert down and go down to the Savannah. So if there's anyone that wants powder, they need to be there between the 11th and, say, the 14th. So Captain Jack would get that letter, and then, yeah, the word would go out, uh, you know, hey, brother, you got, like, two months before she gets here, and you may want to buy, like, two kegs, bro. Pick up two, and and people would even show up and say, I have a, a long list for actually 16 different people that live where I live. You know, and, and I'm actually getting two for each one, so you can handle 32. And, and she was always, of of course we can handle 32. Don't worry about that. Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, she's hauling around this black powder. Isn't that somewhat, 
uh, precarious uh, to be hauling black powder in a wagon? I would say not as bad as making it because a lot of mills went up. You knew where they were and you would often hear like, (laughs) and people would see a plume of smoke, you know, 15 miles away. And when Mary does hers, um, she's not stamping. So she soaks the black powder to where it's soaked wet and is running a grindstone, you know, and that's where as it dries out that people make mistakes sometimes and they're grinding or stamping too much. So the the mill and making it yourself is actually very dangerous. So talk a little bit about her, her relationship with the colonels, the privates, the captains, the military side, because what you're describing there, you know, Anybody, a frontiersman, whoever was hanging out at Captain Jack's Tavern could buy the powder. But what about supplying the army itself? How did that come about? And what, how did she force those relationships? Yeah. So Severe and Shelby, they both know her, uh, uh, Colonel Severe and Colonel Shelby. Um, they both know her because they live over near her. And so they're already buying from her all the time just for shooting and hunting and and any anything that they need. Um, It's when they call for the invasion of the South and that, you know, Cornwallis is going to come up and humble the South to its knees and reinvade the North for the first time. But this time it'll be from the bottom and Charlotte will fall, too. After we take South Carolina, Florida and wrap up Georgia, you'll see. And so this has happened. And that's when the mountain men spasm and they go over there and tell them, like, it doesn't matter if you're broke. Okay, you need to come now in an unsolicited, unscripted, unauthorized battle. This is going to be shoe cobblers and and farmers, and we don't need anyone's permission. And that's when Mary steps up and says, look, first of all, I know you don't have the money, so just take it, okay? And I want to give it to you for free then. And that's what she does. She gives, she has, I mean, who the heck has 500 pounds of powder hanging around out in the warehouse behind your house? (laughs) Okay. let alone that, it's the best powder. It is one of the things at the Battle of Kings Mountain that no one ever talks about is the alacrity of the complaints from the British that when they fired, it was as if cannons were going off. I don't know where these idiots and and illegal crazed nuttos got this powder, but the king had spent like years before, you know, the Declaration of Independence Two years before, starting as early as 74, strangling all powder, locking it all up and getting rid of all powder supplies and warehouses because we know what's getting ready to happen in the colonies and and making powder like nearly impossible to find Landis. So when Mary says, I'm, I'm going to just donate this, they're like, oh, my gosh. And, and when they come across the border here. John Adair, our treasurer, meets him and says, um, I'm also, you know, want to commit an illegal act, but I don't want to go to prison. But I'd like to give you the whole North Carolina treasury illegally. Is there some way we can do that so you would have some money to pay the men and to buy foods and things, you know? And so John Adair gives just over $12,000, the entire North Carolina treasury, unlawfully, without anyone's permission. And he he says, if there's nothing left of North Carolina, what would it matter? What is it going to matter? Because this battle, I think, is going to be the turning point of the entire Revolutionary War. Yeah, you know, which uh, many say that say that it was. Hey, you got another reading here. This gets a little bit into how uh, Mary made her 
black powder and how she talks about it and gets into the caves a little bit. So anytime you're ready. Yeah. And this is a conversation between Colonel Hambright and uh, uh, Mary. And Mary starts off by saying, the sulfur caves for making black powder and bat caves for nitre around my home remain as plentiful as the intense water power needed. The level of premium nitre, charcoal and sulfur we have been able to conjure up made for a perfect storm to mill black powder. While others across the colonies struggled to find the ingredients, we in the wilderness had it right underfoot. And don't forget my sales techniques of selling direct to the customer increased my take twofold. Yeah, I've always wondered how you made such excellent magical black powder at the patent mill and why you moved that to a part of that world, Mary Hambright offered. Mary finished. The secret to our charcoal is using some of the finest wood on the planet. And Taylor's explained to me how much pine was right where we live. And let me tell you, if you both ever visited my homestead, you'll see the secrets to easily find the best night or charcoal and sulfur the world over. But when it comes to the charcoal, well, now making it with that soft pine is really the truth of what no one has ever known, Colonel. And mind you, the grandchildren of my own blood don't sound like me when you come. Their accents are brand new and blend of many accents. We call it the Southern accent, and in time in history, it's never been heard before. She's actually talking with Colonel Hambright's new wife, because he was married twice, had 22 to 24 children, and this is his new wife, Mary, Mary Dover, who is actually down at Gaffney's Crossroads in the John Gaffney Tavern and uh, is talking with John's wife, Mary Mary Gaffney, and they're sitting there having dinner, and and of course it's been a long time since they have seen Mary Patton, and Mary now has contracts for the the Second Revolutionary War is what they call it, which we today call the War of eighteen twelve. She has full on government contracts with President Madison, so that's how famous she has become that she can now actually command Landis a government contract. Well, it's interesting because you, you know. You read all these books about uh, the Battle of Kings Mountain and the Southern Campaign. You know, you you find out about the men that are involved fighting on both sides. You never stop to think about, uh, okay, who supplied the actual ingredients that allowed them to fire the weapons? How important was she to that Southern Campaign? She She, of course, has been selling her powder for years all over the South. And everybody knows from Charlestown to Savannah, the Battle of Camden, Guilford Courthouse, Cowpens, um, Huck's defeat, every battle down here, Ramsears Mill, every battle, Kings Mountain, everyone is toting and carrying her powder and coveting it. And they'll even brag to each other, Landis, you know, uh, yeah, I've got some of the patent powder. What do you have? Oh, I got crap. You know, we got it when we were in Wilmington three months ago. Um, and and it's a it's powerful enough, Landis, to have bitter, angry complaints from the British. Because remember, it had rained for three days before the Battle of Kings Mountain. And many of their cartridges, when they're ripping them with their teeth, complained and said, my cartridge was moist. I could tell it had the paper. It had picked up the moisture from the air and the atmosphere. And our powder was diminished and did not fire anywhere near as the suns that were detonating out of their long rifles. And so, yeah, I mean, this is part of a tactical, vicious 
ferocious advantage that our side had, thanks to this woman. So just a question about the title. Why did you refer to her as terrorist psychotic on your cover? Because any lunatic who is making illegally black powder is often referred to, um, if you look in the dictionaries of the time, uh, terror and, and psychotic, these are words that have been put into the dictionaries. And this is how they talk about her. They're going to find her. They're going to get her. They know that this, this crazed nut is making black powder on the other side of the mountain, where, by the way, did we mention to you that no whites are supposed to be living over there? This is the main reason of the problem with this war, is all of you lunatics are violating his majesty's agreements and contracts with the Indians by living over there. And we are going to find this woman. And they have been looking for her for quite a while who was supplying because that was part of their plan to choke all the black powder out of the colonies. You'll, you'll notice General Washington invades in the Caribbean and steals um, over 100 kegs of powder from a fort just at the beginning of the war to try and provide black powder for his forces because you cannot find it anywhere, bro. That's how difficult it is. And, and, and so when you combine Mary's sulfur reserves that she has, her water power, her soft pine, if you, if you fire black powder today, you probably fire Gokes. You know, G-O-E-X is one of the best powders to fire from your black powder rifle. Um, guess what, what kind of wood Gokes uses to make charcoal? Soft pine, pine forest. Now, how many pine forests or pine trees have you seen around Charlotte, Landis, in Tennessee? It's everywhere you yeah. go, right? Exactly, exactly. Which is, yeah. that's one of the, you need sulfur, you need niter, which is poop, and you need charcoal. And if you want to use charcoal, you can use, you know, maple, you can use white oak, you can use whatever you want. But if you want to make really awesome black powder, you're using soft pine. And that's one of the things Mary says. When they told me that it grows all over the place around here, I knew I was going to become extremely rich. <laughs> all right. Well, just a uh, quick question about the, the writing uh, process itself here. Um, the book itself, I mean, you're right, it has a lot of great footnotes. There's a lot of history packed into the footnotes. The actual text itself, um, the chapters don't, you know, connect one to another. It's not a through story. And I was just wondering about, you know, this, the structure that you came up with and what you were thinking with that, with that approach. Yes. I wanted to jump back and forth. So I do jump forward at one point into the modern day patent family that is alive. And I kind of chronicle them talking back and forth. And uh, there are some shoes from John Patton, her husband in the corner, some leather colonial shoes that have sat there you know, for a long time, uh, over 200 years, and children are are told, don't ever, you know, touch those shoes. So I do jump back and forth, um, you know, from the march after the Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, one of the, the chapters, chapter three, is called, Officers' Swords Are Good for Stabbing Prisoners to Death. Because these are also things I found that no one ever covers, no one ever talks about how pissed off and starving and angry, you know, over a thousand men were marching 800 plus prisoners 
from the Battle of Kings Mountain and how they couldn't find anybody, anybody that had run off the battlefield. There were no reports. There were no injured. There were no wounded. Everybody was gone. The entire battlefield was empty. And they were just, just when they went back to, to Cornwallis and Charlotte, they said, you know, we don't understand, my Lord, how there is nothing. There's not a single report. And we don't know where anyone is. The entire army of over 1,400 people. There are some graves with cadavers in them in a twisted and grotesque fashion. All of the men that we did find, the dead ones, have their heads tilted back with their mouths open. And we think that actually these terrorists went around disfiguring their faces and heads to send some type of grotesque signal, my lord. And a doctor comes into the tent and says, get out right now. Get out. And explains to Cornwallis, look, all of these people that they went up against were sharpshooters and marksmen. They don't aim for center mass, which is taught in the military to shoot for the chest. They put bullets through heads. They're all carrying a long rifle. They have expert black powder made by the finest woman the world probably has ever not known. And they are putting bullets through heads. Their, their range on their weapon is three football fields, 300 yards. Our weapon is good for about 60 yards. They're putting bullets through heads. And when a bullet goes through a human skull, it typically falls onto the ground, and you will find the cadaver with the head tilted back and the mouth open. So, no, they did not go around disfiguring the bodies to send some type of weird message, whatever the hell he was just talking about. That's stupid, my lord. Here's what actually really happened. We attacked and went up, you know, against these people who were all marksmen and sharpshooters. Most of them have been shooting since the age of four. That's how they teach their children. The rifle is laid across a rock, and the child sits on the father's shoulder and is exposed to the deafening roar at four years old and the ringing of the ears and being unable to hear for the next hour or two, my lord. This is how the children are taught around here. So continuing to put them down and make fun of them as buck-tooth illiterate hillbillies and all the other derogatory things you say about people here in Charlotte and the low country and the up country, it's actually just antagonizing them. And here's what happens. We, yes, the entire army is gone and nobody knows where it went. So no one ever talks about that march west to Gilberttown which is where you actually read in some of the diaries of Uzal Johnson, um, the pissed off officer who found a British soldier hiding in a, in a hollowed out tree and started cursing F, MF, Adam, and pulls out his sword and stabs the poor private to death inside the tree. And then a couple of other officers run over and say, stop that, don't do that. Oh, well, he's dead already or bleeding to death. You know, you shouldn't have done that. That's a war crime. What is wrong with you? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm F starving. It's been two days. We have nothing to eat. You know, uh, we, we found some green pumpkins that really weren't, you know, we ate those. All of us got diarrhea. Um, this is what's going on in, in, in the March after the battle. And people often ask me like, yeah, where, where, where the hell did you get the name of that? officers' swords are good for stabbing prisoners to death. What the hell kind of a name is that for a chapter? I'm like, you should read the chapter, bro. You should read the chapter. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, you'll have to go into some voice work after this is over, too. You've, you've got all these different uh, voices down. Hey, let me just share with our listeners. Uh, we're going to jump over 
uh, now to Patreon just a moment uh, where I'm going to talk to Martin about uh, some things he's reading, some book recommendations, uh, maybe a few writing tips. So uh, join us there at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Uh, Martin, uh, listen, I want to thank you for being on Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for allowing me to read from the book also, Landis. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for being on here. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.